This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Denise Ferreira da Silva, author of Unpayable Debt, published this year by Sternberg Press. Dr. Ferreira da Silva, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Stentor. Very happy to be here. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Um, it's a long, it, the answer will be very long, but I, I'll try to make it uh, the shortest possible. I am originally from Brazil, from Rio de Janeiro. I, uh, I was trained as a social scientist, though at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, we had, uh, our social sciences training was very strong in the sense that we had several philosophy courses, psychology, economics, like you, you name it, it was covered. Um, I grew up in, um, in, in a low-income neighborhood in a, in a housing project, Brazilian style, um, and have been politically active for a long time, since I was a teenager. So I was in the Liberation Theology Catholic Church, in the Communist Party, in my neighborhood association, and the Black Movement, and the Workers' Party. And... Um, and I was, I was trained in, in Brazil for my um, undergrad degree and then my master's. So the, the book, in a way, reflects that, that background kind of in the same way as for the global idea of race. But in Unpayable Debt, I think the question was more, it's more directly posed to, to the Marxist project, right, to the, to the political project, and, um, and it is um, what the question it seeks to formulate <laughs> through all the unpacking I do in the, in the book is one that has remained even, you know, after I moved to the U.S. and did my PhD and starts to explore more uh, the philosophical side of things 
uh, it still stayed stayed there as primarily because with all the changes in the U.S. over the past 30 years, with all the losses we have um, suffered, and I'm thinking here about you know the welfare reform, the criminalization of immigration, um, and the, yeah the crime bill, and and then the laws of voting rights, and now the laws of, of low wage. So all of those losses also. Um, you know, even as I was writing the book for a while, I was also reflecting them with the same question, like what what are the basis for our political uh, discourse and practice and why colonial subjugation and racial subjugation are not central, have not been been central. So that's what the book tries to, uh, tries to answer. I think it reflects, um, you know, I, I think I have said that, it reflects, I, ha, I was very well trained as a social scientist. So I was so well trained that I could see, learn to see the flaws of the whole enterprise. And I have had this really varied uh, political engagement in different ways from different fronts. And I think that helped me also to appreciate um, some, of, some of the limitations. And growing up Black in Brazil, and living as a black person in the U.S. and the U.K. and now now in Canada, I think it all comes together. In uh, especially in the ways in which the book begins with you know, um, you know, begins with what has already happened, even though it has not taken place. Yeah, I like that you you frame it as coming out of your training in the social sciences combined with your your political background because the book doesn't have that that tone of like hey wait a minute what are we actually doing here um when you talk about the existing social science uh, approaches to things um so, so uh, go ahead oh no go ahead i was going to move on to my next question but if you had a... no so just move on no no yes <laughs> okay <Please do. laughs> okay uh so my my first uh question is about the title. So it's called Unpayable Debt. So what is this debt and why is it unpayable? Um, Unpayable debt is a debt that one carries, but it's not one's to pay. (laughs) Um, Hence, it's unpayable, but that that is more so that. So the the phrase unpayable debt itself, it was something that we used to shout in the protests in the streets of Brazil, but mostly of Rio de Janeiro when I was young, as we were, we were protesting uh, the International Monetary Fund, you know, structural adjustment policies and impositions. Uh, so we, yeah, we used to say that the external debt of Brazil was, was unpayable. So that is my memory of, of that. And then when uh, Paula Chakravarti and I were writing the introduction to the special issue of American Quarterly. Um, the title of the special issue was Race, Empire, and the Crisis of um, the Subprime. The phrase came back to me immediately as, you know, again, looking at the situation of the Black persons and families and Latinx persons and families who are blamed for a crisis that was caused by the fact that others were, you know, profiting from their inability to pay their mortgages. <laughs> so it was just as absurd as the the the, the foreign debt, you know, that 
that was so horrible for Brazil and Latin American countries back back in the 1980s. So then people that in I mean the book the book is all about it. I, you know any any answer uh, for the question of what it is that I'll give you now will be much less and will be you know very very limited. But I'm going to I'm not saying that so I want to give you an answer. I'll I'll give you an answer. Um, <laughs> but I just want to preface it, it with that. So in addition to what I said that an unpayable debt is a debt that one owns but it's not one's to pay with the phrase unpayable debt I am trying to capture the cir- how the circumstances in particular the jury- maybe I shouldn't say circumstances I should say the social conditions um, or what Marx called the social conditions of subjugation how how they in fact um okay that's one of those that the, the question got lost so let me rewind okay um so yeah i think yeah that is it it is it is really about showing how one one can incur in a in a that that is actually an effect of the fact that one has been constructed as a person who has uh, some kind of deficit or defect, whether it's usually a moral defect, which is, you know, the ways in which racial racial subjugation operates, right? It was how it operated in the case of the subprime, allowing that those who suffered the most were the ones to blame but for the crisis. And then they were the ones punished because then when the business went away, uh, the foreclosures came, those were the people who lost their jobs and lost their homes. Um, so it's, it is, the unpayable, that's the, is the little machine that keeps reproducing racial subjugation in that very particular way through the construction of, of the racialist subaltern persons and groups as having a moral deficit, which then becomes the justification for their you know, precarious economic, social situations. And then they're blamed for that and it keeps going. Um, I think another way of saying that is a, is a debt that somebody owes somebody and then it is translated into a deficit that then justifies, you know, more, more extraction, more expropriation. There must be a better way of answering the question, but it's really <laughs> impossible because <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> because I think they that is an image, right? I mean, it is it is just yeah. an image that allows me to to say all kinds of things. But anyway, I yeah. gave it a well, try. <laughs> yeah, and I I think we'll get a you know a more fleshed out understanding as we go through some more more questions about the book um so one of the things that drew me to the book was that one of your main touch points is the work of octavia butler and in particular uh, her novel kindred so can you talk about the significance of kindred and how you connect it to the rest of uh what you're saying in the book so kindred i i met um when did i read kindred I think I read I read the first novel by Octavia Butler that I read was Dawn, uh, the, Zeno, the the first one in Xenogenesis, um, 
trilogy. And then immediately I, you know, I am a bit obsessed, so I, I should read the first novel. <laughs> so I went and, and I got Kindred. And I was taking, yes, I was taking a course. I was in grad school and I was taking a course on black feminist writing. I was at directed study, so I included I include, included Butler. And then I read everything, right? Uh, and I kept reading the new books when, when they came out. And I was, it was amazing because I, I was able to see that, that the figure of that woman, the, the main character, which in, in every book was, was the same, but she wasn't the same. And she stayed, she stayed with me. And when I was teaching at the University of California, San Diego, I was an assistant professor and I used to teach the theory course. And at some point, not very at the very beginning, but at some point I started teaching uh, Kindred as part of my theory uh, of ethnic studies course. And then every time I, I was teaching it, it, it became more and more evident that there was something about space and time in that, uh, in that novel that was relevant to to make sense towards making sense of racial subjugation, not only in the U.S. but but beyond, and it's precisely you know that that way in which the way in which slavery uh, refuses to go away, <laughs> um, even though you know historically it has gone away, um, but yet at the same time we can you can just scratch the surface and it seems that you 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 can see that whole. Um, that whole juridical economic structure operating everywhere. And with and with Kindred, first for the for the introduction to the special issue of uh, American Quarterly, it was just perfect that, you know, that what happens to the main character, Dana, it happens when she and her partner move into a new house. In Los Angeles, and then all of a sudden she's whisked away to, you know, to uh, Maryland in the 18th, 19th century, and it was about the house. So, you know, so all of a sudden, and then and we were writing about the, you know, the crisis of the subprime. So all of a sudden, the the image of the house um, in Kindred basically took over, and and to me it, it helped to account for how buying a house for um, you know undocumented migrants and black folks in the US was akin to just you know return to the condition um, well in the case of black folks to the condition of slavery but in the case of uh, even documented and and, uh, and undocumented migrants to a to a juridical condition which does not correspond to you know freedom and and et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, from from opening that introduction with with Kindred talking about the house and the house in its economic, and then its ethical and its historical, and its you know different um, different meanings attached to the house. Um, that opened up the you know. Number one, I, I when I wrote about Kindred and um, Unpayable Debt for that introduction, I wrote much more than we use in the introduction. So what I did was, a few years later, I took that 
uh, what, it, what didn't go into the introduction, and I wrote an essay titled Unpayable Debt, in which I, um, I explored those different significations of, of the house and the home, um, but, but opening up already with the structure that became the structure of, of the book. So the book has these four different moments and each one of those moments, even though I don't, I don't say it uh, very explicitly in it, but each one of them corresponds to the symbolic, the economic, the the, the juridic, um, you know, dimensions of of social existence, which are also signified by by house, like oikos. Um, so economy comes from oikos, and anyway. So I'm not going to expand much on that. But yeah, so the significance of kindred is precisely that that house, that moving into that house um, basically relocated, relocates the that person, the character, to this the place where, you know, it's back then and right now are indistinguishable. And and that that place you know, is is also something that it's uh, signaled, signified by by property. And then, if you think about the significance of you know having owning a house in the U.S., um, I think it also is also a key for for understanding um, you know all the larger uh, processes related to that. And and that was a gift from uh, Octavia Butler, uh, just you know tickled my thinking and uh, inspired me to explore further what could be said about um, about racial subjugation and colonial subjugation if we just begin with the house. And that's how the book also opens, right? Um, with the, the past perfect and, and yeah, anyway. Okay, let's let me stop here. Maybe I'll go back to it later. Yeah, we can. You can bring that back in in, in further questions as well. Uh, so the next thing I wanted to ask about is this kind of central concept that that comes up over and over in the book of the wounded captive body in the scene of subjugation. And so I'd like if you could first explain what the wounded captive body in the scene of subjugation is. Uh, and then also maybe talk a bit about the fact that you don't have like an acronym or a shortened version of that phrase. You always use the full wounded captive body in the scene of subjugation whenever you uh, refer to that uh, idea. So if you could talk a bit about, you know, your your choice of how to express that uh, that concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like unpayable that, the wounded captive body in the scene of subjugation is, is an image, um, but it's an image that it comes to you as you as you speak it, right? <laughs> so I decided not to use an acronym precisely because I wanted to go, you know, to have that. E- I I want to have that image in that the, the description of that image in the writing. I didn't think about the reader 
to be honest. <laughs> I thought about my writing. I didn't think what it would do with the with with the reader, but I I knew that every time I I know that every time I repeat that you know that phrase in in the book, I'm I'm gathering you know and I'm calling attention to what um, to the scene um, to the main scene, which is the one that which is the one that um, in a way allows me to assemble the method for reading in that is unpayable that right because unpayable that is a method for for reading and that scene is from Hortense Spiller's Mama's Baby Papa's Maybe and the scene when she described the you know the engendered female flesh um, so the wounded captive body in the scene of subjugation is also another name for the engendered female flesh. And what, what that image does to me, for me, is to take, to, actually it allows me to avoid concepts that will be immediately read as something else and then be hijacked and whatever I write if I use the concept such as the concept of the slave, will be hijacked by all the meanings that the, you know the slave in slavery have, and what I'm trying to say you know could be lost. So that the, the wounded captive body in the scene of subjugation allows me to, to bring um, captivity, which is slavery to bring the body, the captive body, the, the body of the enslaved, and refer it to the black body, but without using blackness, which also as a social category, also can, could hijack what, I, what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say. Be, if When you read the book, you see that it also allows me to, to bring, to make a reference to the flash, which has a very important uh, role in Horton Spiller's text and thinking, and also in the argument that I make in the book, and that primarily the propositions at the end of it, and the scene of the scene of subjugation is not it's not the scene of racism, it's not the scene of exclusion, it's not the scene of uh, of discrimination, but it is the scene that shows racial subjugation as being primarily a juridic and economic uh, process. Um, so the reference to the scene of subjugation uh, allows me to take the arguments made in the book outside of the usual sociological understanding of racial subjugation as exclusion, discrimination, etc., and allows me then to move with the, the, the argument that the, for instance, the argument that we should look at the color line beyond, you know, reference to skin color, but to look at the ways in which it is, um, it reproduces uh, the juridic and, and economic investments of in the in slavery related to, to slavery. So the phrase does uh, quite a bit of work, uh, even before it does any of it. <laughs> Um, because by the time I assemble it in the in in, in chapter one, it it and I assembled it, reading um, you know Horton Spiller, Cydia Hartman, and Fred Moten, uh, it it already it maps all all the arguments in the book. I think um, 
that is a way i mean you can you can put all those words somewhere and make all the connections to uh, different arguments I make in each in each chapter. Um, well, I think. I don't know what the readers will think. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. Um, as a reader, I think that, that what you're saying there uh, is, is pretty accurate to how the book uh, how the book leads you through your, your arguments there. Um, could you say a little more about your perspective on the way that conventionally social science uh, talks about race because that's one of the the things you're you're critiquing is the way that race gets used in sort of typical social science uh studies yes um so this is an argument that i make in in my first book toward the global idea of race which is i try in that one i try to excavate the conditions of um you know, the conditions of emergence and the conditions of production of the concepts and, and categories that play out in racial subjugation at the concept, at the symbolic level or at the level that, you know, others would call ideological or, or cultural. And finally, after 20 years almost, I figured a way of describing it in you know, a shorter and I think easier way of describing it um, so toward the global idea of race took me 350 pages now in in the paper that um, it's shorter and and the way I I describe this usual sociological explanation for racial subjugation I call it uh, the racial dialectic and it has three moments the one moment is a moment of attribution of the cause for you know discrimination and exclusion, it, it is attributed to the to physical traits, right? To racial racial difference. So, black people are discriminated against because we have some physical traits that identify us as black, and then white people don't like those physical traits because in their mind they are actually signs of some mental and moral attributes which are not good. So they discriminate against us against black people. So that's the usual that that's the, the usual argument, the first the, the beginning. So okay, that attribution actually places the cause of racial subjugation on the person who is subjugated or on the group that is subjugated. And uh, and that and that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, it also constructs the the elements of racial subjugation as being signaling some kind of of deficit, of moral deficit. So you have physical difference that then leads to a morally improper attitude, which is to discriminate against somebody or some people on the basis of a belief on their own moral deficit. So that's the that's the second moment of that that racial dialectic. And then and then of course the the, the result is that the, the the reason for racial subjugation 
you know, ends up being the racial difference that is born in those who are subjugated and not on the juridic, economic, symbolic and, uh, context within which it takes it takes place. So in, um, in toward the global idea of race, I did the mapping that I, I say, the mapping of the analytics of raciality. And in that I was primarily you know, excavating what I call the political symbolic context of, of modern thinking, where racial difference and cultural difference play, uh, they, have, they have been playing a crucial role since the second half of the 19th century. And then in, in Unpayable Dutch, that, that task is already done, but then, so what I do is to, you know, displace uh, trying to displace the racial dialectic as a you know as the explanation for racial subjugation, and I propose an you know an explanation for racial subjugation, which is also an account of of the relations between state capital over the past uh, two hundred years almost, but an explanation that um, actually is primarily what a mapping or maybe not. Yeah, I can call it a mapping, but maybe better is a description of um, the political architecture um, of the liberal political architecture in the post Enlightenment period. So, in the in the previous book, I was able to you know identify the symbolic as a crucial moment of the political, uh, and this and and then also more importantly to show how racial difference and cultural difference are such important, you know, weapons in that in that arsenal. And then in this book I just bring the symbolic to the analysis of the juridic, the economic and the ethical. Um, and that allows me, you know, the mapping of the political architecture of the global present. I think you you can see it right how that's connected to to my training, to that initial preoccupation. Um, because that's, you know, I'm still dealing with the same question, right? Um, and uh, and I was already dealing with that question in toward the global idea of race, but I didn't have the vocabulary um, for making, you know, for doing the work of, which is more of a work of political theory than, than, of, than of sociological theory or, you know, which I, that's something I didn't say when I was talking about my background. So I did social sciences in, in, as, a, as an undergraduate, but my area of concentration was uh, political theory. Um, even though I wasn't thinking of any of those questions back then, but I was absolutely fascinated by political theory. And I think I still am. Yeah. So earlier on, you referenced Marx. And so one of the things you're doing in the book is developing a a critique of some of Marx's ideas. So could you walk us through uh, what you have to say about Marx? Um. Yes, two things, but those are two different positions about Marx. Um, On the one hand, that is a reading of, no, maybe, okay, no, maybe I can do, so do you want me to talk a lot about it? Because I can just, go for it. 
okay okay so the general the more the more general argument uh, in regards to to i'll call it historical materialism is um an attention i, I give attention to a, a distinction marx makes um that is crucial for what has become i think i would say the destiny of colonial subjugation in Marxist theorizing, right? Which is, and the destiny is, you know, being placed as a moment of, as the moment of primitive accumulation, as the moment just before accumulation of capital proper uh, takes place. And that's, um, oh God, I forgot his name. I was going to mention somebody. Uh, Harvey, David Harvey, you know, even his accumulation by dispossession, is actually design, describe that 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 moment happening you know now as still not proper moment of accumulation of capital. So I you know that so that first moment is one of that the, the, mo- the most general uh, comment I should say is one that deals with these in which I try to deal with with this distinction by by going back to Marx and then looking at how the position of slavery and the colonies in the building of of his uh, argument regarding you know the theory of value and what i what i find is that i find two different moments in 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 the in the his presentation of the concept of capital one moment which is a moment of, of determination of capital which is the moment of you know answering the question of what is capital, what is intrinsic, what is its intrinsic difference, what, and that in that in that moment, uh, both the notion of time and labor time are are crucial, and the other moment is the moment of distinction that distinguishes the historic, let's say, the mode of capital as a mode of production from others, right? And the others are not determined. The one that is determined is is capital. So I call that second moment in the presentation of capital uh, one uh, of delimitation, because there, instead of, of, of answering the question of what, of what capital is or what capital is not, uh, Marx, be in particular in, in regards to the colonies and and slave labor and slavery, what Marx um, states is that these two are not uh, capital because they they refer and they exemplify different social conditions, different uh, social relations of production. But he doesn't determine them. And nor does it determine capital against them. So I I call this moment of the limit. Uh, what I highlight in this moment of delimitation is precisely uh, the fact that what we have there is an articulation of negation, is a mode of negation um, that is uh, articulated through infinite judgments. And here I'm I'm just quoting. Um, Using Emmanuel, Emmanuel Kant's uh, table of of categories, so that allows me to do <laughs> several things, um, and that is where there is an, another distinction in there. One is uh, 
it, on the one hand, it allows me to agree, like I agree with Marx and I agree with um, his, his, his statement that labor, that, that living labor, labor, labor time, labor as applied is the only productive um, factor, uh, is the only productive factor, the only factor that produce value, uh, more importantly, in, in that that produce uh, exchange value, and um, agreeing with with Marx in that, and also assuming that actually there is no determination of um, of slave of slave labor, right? That slave labor, if you take his descriptions of of labor, they could easily apply to slave labor. So slave labor is, doesn't count in the production. Of capital only because of the juridical conditions, which is, you know, title and not and not uh, uh, a contract. So I agree with Marx in that um, in that labor is the only productive factor there, in the factor produ- produ- productive of uh, exchange value. And but then I disagree with him in that slave labor should not count because of. Those are different juridical conditions that you know they are outside of the the, the, the historical time of capital. So in doing that, um, you know, in agreeing with him and taking away the delimitative um, separation that he creates, I can make an argument. I mean, it's not. A, it's, it's, yeah, I can make the argument. I can present the argument because I'm presenting the argument. That slave labor entering the production of of um, of the commodity, and to do that, I use his description of the law of that of value, as it is uh, in chapter seven, volume one of Capital. And I can make the argument that slave labor does participate in the production of the value of of the yarn, but of course. On the other hand, it's it's not it is not counted because it's been delimited out. So that oh no 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 Laura, let let me go back to this. So slave labor entered in the production of of the value of of the yarn, but it but but it enters but it's unlike uh, wage labor what enters in the production of of the yarn is the total value produced by slave labor. And not only, uh, you know, the value minus wage, right? So that is, and so what is ex- in this? That means that what is being extracted from slave labor is total value, while what is extracted, what is ex- extracted from living labor or wage labor, is surplus value, and that and that difference between. Um, Total value and 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 surplus uh, value is this the access, which then I can take um, as uh, as an element as part of the description um, of 
of racial subjugation. So that's one of the things. It's so much, Stantor. I mean, like, I can't do this. It's too much. Uh, no, no, this is this is good. And this, you know, if people have more questions, right, then they can go read the book. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. that's how you do it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop here. That's okay. it. You, you figure out how to make it work, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, so then, I was I was also interested in the cover of, of the book. I always like to ask uh, my interviewees about the you know the cover images of their books. So yours is uh, like a, a drawing of a, a hand holding a match that's been drawn on this like textbook page uh, mm-hmm. that's kind of cut out of a, a larger uh, image that you have you know reproduced within the book. Uh, could you tell us a bit about you know this image? How, how did you find this, and why did you choose this as your cover image? I, this one is a short answer. Um, the editor of the series with Sternberg, Anna Teixeira Pinto, she had some su- suggestions as you know to possible covers, and and she really liked Raj Kamal Kalon, and then. She sent me several images, and then when I saw this one, like couldn't be better. <laughs> um, that that hand holding, you know, that little, you know, mat, you know, match and um, burning the pages of history. So I really, I, I couldn't. Yeah, um, I thought it was such a perfect image for, you know, for the content of the book. Um, it is, you know, talking about Maryland and Virginia and and then Washington, D.C. So I just thought, yeah. And then we had some discussions about how, you know, what to have in the cover, right? Because then there is only so much that it's shown in there. And, and, um, and the and the and the question was about you know where the should the the match be and that or unpayable and so different things, but yes, these wives I I saw, and I I thought that's it that's the cover for my book. Yeah, it's nice when a decision is easy like that. You see, I'm like oh, that's what's what it's got to be. No, yeah, it was. I mean, it was really amazing working with. Um, Anna and um, and the editor Mark uh, Max Bach at Sonborg because we yeah so there was some you know so they they had so much care with with the thinking about the object <laughs> as the book not only about the text um, so how you know how people would look at it, how they, it would be held, and then you know how the image would look on the page, and the colors. So working with them on that part was um, was really a pleasure because you know, we are also thinking about creating a, a, an object that it's you know you know pleasant and pretty. Well, you can pass on my compliments because this is like a nice book to hold. I'm glad I have the paper copy and not just a, you know, a, an ebook of this one. Um, oh, thank you. So, and then that 
provides a nice segue into uh, one of the wrap-up questions as you know don't want to keep you forever here but i wanted to give you a chance to give like a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone uh, whose help was important to you as you were writing the book oh wow i have a whole bunch of people to thank for uh, that help and support one of them is obviously Mark Harris, who made life possible while I was I've spent the pandemic year writing a book. But my 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 friends, people with whom I have been thinking for a, for a long time, they are the members of the anti-colonial machine. They all know who they are, but I have to thank uh, Fred Moulton and David Lloyd because they did read um, you know versions of this book, and also Horton Spillers just for her writing and thinking and her existing <laughs> in this world and, and allowing me to think the things that I, I need to. And um, yeah, and then my students, I, I yes, it would be a long, long, long list of thank yous, but but the folks from the anti-colonial machine and the pra- and practicing refusal, uh, folks with whom I have been you now talking um, about many of these, these ideas over the years and and many times they would just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, but then at the same time, once I said why, what, and why I was talking about those things, they were the ones who gave me the support. So no, yeah, it's been, it's been fun to think with them. Okay. And then that brings us to our traditional final question, uh, which is, what are you working on next? What kind of projects do you have coming up now that this book is out? Well, I am finishing a book, um, which the manuscript is pretty, pretty much done, which, which is titled After It's All Said, which is a book on um, actually... It's been inspired by contemporary artists whose work confront the colonial, racial, cis heteropatriarchal matrix. And, but then it's also a critique of, um, of I mean, the very field of criticality and the, the, and the, the aesthetics. So it's a fun book. It's been a fun book to write. I have... Um, because I spend time thinking with with art. And I am also working on a book. I don't know what it is, you know, what how the what the title will be like, but it's a book on interiority or a book on subjectivity. Sometimes I think it's a book on Deleuze, and then other times I think that can't possibly be because I'm not a Deleuzean, but it may become a book on Gilles Deleuze. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to working on it. Um, I'm teaching two seminars next spring at uh, the Department of Philosophy at uh, the University of Paris 8. And one is on interiority, the other is on subjectivity, and the two of them together will give me the book. And then I think after teaching the seminars, I'll know (laughs) how to, the title. All right. Well, we'll be looking out for those and maybe have you back on the podcast to talk about uh, those books when they come out. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Estanto. <laughs> this has been a conversation with Denise Ferreira da Silva, author of Unpayable Debt, published this year by Sternberg Press.